My name is Shane Lewis, and you are listening to Forever on My Mind, Blues Songwriting in the 1960s, an independent study podcast from the College of Worcester. After a long day of being stuck in my room with online classes, I logged out of Microsoft Teams with my vision blurry from staring at a screen all day and my mind even blurrier. The class I had just logged off from was titled Civil War, Gender, and Commemoration with Dr. J, and that day we had discussed the historical holiday of Decoration Day. Now known as Memorial Day, Decoration Day was named for women decorating the graves of their fallen husbands, and both the North and the South celebrated this day on different dates and in different ways. This was one of my favorite classes I have taken at Worcester, and even after having spent the entire day staring at a screen, I was still thinking about what we had talked about in class. I realized later in the evening that I had heard about Decoration Day before. I opened Spotify and re-listened to a song from a blues album I had listened to recently with the harrowing title of It Serves You Right to Suffer. The sixth track on the album was titled Decoration Day, and I decided to re-listen to the track. It told a story of a man dying and him telling his wife to decorate his grave every decoration day. My appreciation for this album then grew immensely from this connection I found from a history class, and it was from then on that the blues guitarist, songwriter, and mythical traveler John Lee Hooker became one of my biggest musical inspirations. John Lee Hooker, which is both his given and stage name, lived a life shrouded in mystery and mythology. Born somewhere in the Mississippi Delta, his exact date of birth and location is disputed. The day was August 17th, and over the years, Hooker has determined he was born somewhere between 1917 and 1920. The location was somewhere near Clarksdale, Mississippi, but the exact location is still unknown. Born into this world with mystery, his entire life would be defined by questions that others and himself simply never knew the answer to. Like most of the black population in the Delta at the time, John Lee Hooker lived and worked with his family on a sharecropping farm. His father, William Hooker, was a preacher who ran his household strictly with religious passion. He disapproved of the blues, calling it devil music, and did all he could to prevent the blues from entering his household. John Lee Hooker's interest in music first started from him being a singer in the choir at church. When Hooker was still a child, the blues guitarist Tony Hollins, who was a neighborhood friend of the Hooker family, gave him his first guitar. The guitar was old and worn out, and Hooker could barely even play it. His father disapproved and said that he could only use the instrument if it was outside of the house and he could not hear it. Very soon, Hooker fell in love with the instrument and started skipping school to learn it as much as possible. It was at this point he would dedicate his life to making music. Shortly after being given his first guitar, Hooker's parents split up. 
Hooker went with his mother and his new stepdad, Will Moore, whom he grew very close with. Moore gave John Lee Hooker a new acoustic guitar and taught him more guitar skills, and in general was much more encouraging of the blues lifestyle than Hooker's biological father. Despite having a happy and healthy family life with Moore and his mother, Hooker absolutely hated being in the South. It was not necessarily the rough conditions of the Delta either. Rather, it was the idea that the people within his life stayed in the South for their entire lives. John Lee Hooker felt confined by the opportunities in the community within the Delta, and quickly he became restless and desperate to leave. And in 1933, he did just that, leaving his family behind without a word. And so, around the age of 16, Hooker started to define his life by what he is most known for in the blues world, traveling. He first went to Memphis and stayed with his aunt, Emma Lou, for a year. He then struck for up north and went to Cincinnati, where he started working industrial jobs in the Midwestern city. However, it was here that he heard about a city even further up north with even more opportunities in industry. A city that was defined by gray skies, industrial landscapes, and its motor industry from which its nickname stems from. Thus, around the mid-1930s, John Lee Hooker moved to Detroit, Michigan, a city very important to his life and career. During this traveling and eventual settling in Detroit, Hooker was slow to expose himself to the blues world. He started off just by himself playing house parties and juke joints wherever he was and entertaining the masses. During World War II, Detroit became an industrial powerhouse, and Hooker was merely one of the many industrial laborers in the city. He married and was close to his wife Maud for a long time, with whom he had a few children. Maud was very encouraging of his musical career, which he was still pursuing after work at night. He was known for playing extremely long, drawn-out blues songs alone on his acoustic guitar, which he would simply call the boogie. Hooker would play these songs for hours at a time, making up lyrics on the spot and rocking the entire house by himself. As a result of his performances, he quickly grew popular in Detroit, and by 1948, he was getting noticed by an entity that would become both his best friend and his sworn enemy his entire life, the music industry. Record companies became interested in selling blues records after World War II, and John Lee Hooker was simply another business asset to those managers and companies. In 1948, Bernard Bestman of Sensation Records got Hooker into the studio to record. From Bestman's standpoint, recording with Hooker was frustrating at first. Because his songs were defined by being extremely long with improvised lyrics that were different every time, it seemed at first that he was not the right fit for the industry. Hooker would just keep going on the records, and he refused to perform a song the same way between takes. Eventually, Bestman got a solid recording of him performing a song he called Boogie Chillin'. The result was a droning, hypnotic, groovy, three-minute song with a repeating riff that told the story of his lifelong desire to be a blues musician and his first arrival in Detroit. The song exposed the world to John Lee Hooker and his strange and fascinating songwriting. Boogie Chillin' was a hit for several reasons. For one thing, the song was unapologetically Detroit, and sold well in the city with black audiences. It mentioned specific locations in Detroit such as Hastings Street, a predominantly black neighborhood, or the Henry Swing Club, a popular black music venue. Full bands and electric guitars were starting to become the sound when it came to blues records in the late 1940s. However, the three-minute-long Boogie Chillin' sounded like it was recorded the same year as Charlie Patton's records in the 1920s, in that it was just a man and a guitar. Bestman was skeptical if John Lee Hooker's records would even sell because of this, but he was very wrong. Audiences were drawn into the heavy-hitting and repetitive guitar riffs and the high-pitched voice that shouted out strange stories that may or may not have even been true. 
John Lee Hooker would end up recording several singles with Bestman in the late 1940s, and during the early 1950s, he jumped between record companies while still recording with Bestman. These companies included the Bahari Brothers' Modern Records and Specialty Records, both based out of L.A. The music industry was extremely aggressive and brutal towards John Lee Hooker. It seemed like everyone wanted to make as much money as possible on his talent, and as a result, he started to get tired of it. His experiences in Detroit shaped him to be bitter towards the industry, and a sense of anger and skepticism towards the managers and producers pervaded him from then on, and justifiably so. John Lee Hooker would later claim in his life that he barely made any money at this time, and that managers and producers saw him as simply disposable. Much like his attitude towards the Delta, John Lee Hooker eventually got tired of the Motor City. With rock and roll starting to overshadow the blues, Hooker did what most blues musicians did in the early 1950s, and moved to Chicago. He had never met or even heard of acts like Howlin' Wolf or Muddy Waters before this time, but quickly was encompassed in the thriving Chicago blues scene. In 1955, John Lee Hooker signed with Chess Records' main competitor, VJ Records. This time, he recorded singles with an electric guitar, and was accompanied by a full band. However, the 1950s proved even more difficult for him to make money on his own music, mainly because of the competition with rock and roll, the emerging genre of Motown from his previous residence, and his competition within the Chicago scene. As a result, only one of these singles, Dimples, sold well, while the rest became lost within the sea of blues in Chicago. By this time, most of John Lee Hooker's discography consisted of just singles. In 1959, however, his career shifted greatly with the release of his first few albums, in particular the album The Country Blues of John Lee Hooker. John Lee Hooker had been trying out the electrical sound with a full band, but this album harkened back to his first singles where it was just him and an acoustic guitar. According to the liner notes of the album written by producer Oren Keepnews, Hooker was, quote, a most authentic singer of the way back, close to the soil kind of blues. This album was released just in time for the folk craze that was happening in the late 1950s and early 1960s, and folk audiences absolutely adored the album and wanted to hear more of John Lee Hooker. During the release of his first few albums, Hooker would again be further exploited by the music industry. Because he had signed with so many record companies in the 1950s, these companies still collected royalties and held the rights to some of his songs. These companies released a ton of strange, practically nameless, and inconsistent compilations of various recording sessions with weird and random pictures or drawings that only slightly resembled John Lee Hooker. Some of these can still be listened to on streaming platforms today, but quite a few of them were just the same material over and over again. Although they were not technically bootlegs as they were officially released, they still barely represented his songwriting or attitude. These albums were clearly motivated by the music industry trying to make as much money on the personality of John Lee Hooker, and it angered him. His personality hardened toward the music industry, and the experience made him even more restless. By the 1960s, his anger bled into his songwriting, to the point where John Lee Hooker had to find somewhere to shout out his story to the masses. beginning of the 1960s, the folk craze was just getting started. 
Songwriters like Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, and Joni Mitchell were quickly becoming some of the nation's most demanded acts. What drew audiences to these kinds of songs were the stories that they told, and whether they were true or not. Much like the rebelliousness from rock and roll a decade before, there was a sense of resistance in the folk scene when it came to telling a story and speaking out loud. The mythological and activist aspects of the songwriters drew audiences into the folk craze, and black blues acts like John Lee Hooker were quickly accepted into this mostly white scene of performers and audiences. Before the folk craze, John Lee Hooker's primary audience were black residents of Detroit, Chicago, and various parts of the South. With this folk craze, he all of a sudden gained a new white audience that adored his songwriting, and this was even before the British invasion and the blues craze. In the early 1960s, he released several acoustic albums based around storytelling, most notably the albums That's My Story in 1960 and Burn in Hell in 1962. At one point, John Lee Hooker even lived in New York City, the center of the folk craze, where he recorded albums and played in coffee shops. Hooker looked back on his days playing coffee shops on rainy days in New York City fondly, even if he barely had an audience. One frequent fan he garnered during this time was a young up-and-coming songwriter by the name of Bob Dylan, who, according to biographer Anthony Scaduto, quote, spent every night in Gerdes's folk city watching John Lee Hooker. John Lee Hooker easily fit into this folk scene. Not only was this scene popular with musicians like Hooker, who were full of onks that wished to speak out no matter what, but the scene also admired the blues as a genre. A lot of the white folk songwriters greatly appreciated the blues' stream of consciousness and storytelling, and credited blues musicians as their inspirations. This scene was his first opportunity to share his stories with the world, and he took full advantage of it. However, due to his lifelong restlessness, his stint in the folk world was short-lived, and by 1962, he had moved to a completely different music scene an entire ocean away. By the early 1960s, Western Europe was feeling the blues craze, and they demanded to hear acts like John Lee Hooker. In 1962, Hooker played his first American folk blues festival in Europe, which exposed him to his European fans, to whom he was an absolute hit. These festivals and performances were filmed and broadcasted on television and radio networks such as the BBC. In 1964, he was backed live by the Groundhogs, and in 1965, by John Mayall's Blues Breakers, two English blues bands that admired his work. Despite him being a rock star, John Lee Hooker's life was still defined by his restlessness and need to move from one place to the next. He was going back and forth between Europe and America constantly, never staying in one place the entire decade. When he was not playing for festivals or television, John Lee Hooker would be in the studio recording new material wherever and with whoever he could. He had no consistent backing band, record company, manager, or location. He never even had a consistent guitar his entire career, as he can be seen playing a different one in nearly every photo or video of him. Each of his albums in the 1960s had a completely different sound, narrative, and structure depending on where he was and who he was playing with. During this time, Hooker was like a recording machine. For nearly each year in the decade of the 1960s, there were at least two or three albums released under the name of John Lee Hooker, and these records were being promoted and sold everywhere, whether he knew about them being released or not.
Despite his restless traveling and inconsistent management during the 1960s, John Lee Hooker remained unapologetically himself and shared his stories to the world any way he could. With the growth and popularity of both the blues and the album as an art form, the decade gave John Lee Hooker the platform to express his rage and anger that had been boiling up for years. In this decade, Hooker let his frustrations out in many different ways. These included stories of his travels, sorrowful and bitter confessions from his life, calls to action supporting the civil rights movement and protesting the Vietnam War, and sometimes just an excuse to dance your problems away. Within his sea of albums remained two constant emotions that seemed to define John Lee Hooker, restlessness and anger. The restlessness inspired him to travel, and his anger fueled his songwriting, shifting it dramatically during the 1960s. The first song that truly began John Lee Hooker's mythic traveling folklore in the 1960s was the song I'm Wanderin' on his 1960 album That's My Story. In this song, Hooker compares himself to, quote, a ship out on the foam, endlessly wandering and lost. He mourns that he has, quote, nobody in the world to care for him, and desperately asks for a lost lover to, quote, give him one more chance. Although his traveling was romanticized by the white audience during his folk years, to him it was a part of his sorrow and his coping with the pain he felt. With these songs, it was as if John Lee Hooker was screaming at his audience that his constant traveling was real and not just part of a myth. In fact, he expresses this frustration on a song recorded in 1966 that was not released into the 1990s in a song titled Nobody Knows. In this track, Hooker declares that, quote, Nobody knows what he's been through. He's drifting from town to town, and really, this is, quote, why he sings the blues. Two songs off of the 1966 album It Serves You Right to Suffer perfectly exemplify the lowest and most depressing frustration that he expressed in his discography. These two tracks are Country Boy and the title track. Stylistically, they are both very similar in that they consist of one droning, scratchy, repetitive chord that seems to never end. In Country Boy, Hooker describes himself as, quote, nothing but a country boy, endlessly traveling with, quote, no place to lay his worried head. At the end of the track, he describes a cold night where he knocks on the door of a stranger's house, desperately asking a woman if he can come in and stay the night. The woman tells him that she, quote, had a brother who left home, and that she knew he would find him eventually. The song ends with no further explanation, but it can be understood that the narrator had accidentally returned home after many years of traveling. It's as if John Lee Hooker recognizes the aggressive cycle that comes from his traveling. No matter how much he travels and tries to run away from his problems, he will always return home, whatever home is to him. The title track, It Serves You Right to Suffer, is harrowing just from the title alone. Standing out from a lot of his other songs, the song has no narrative or structure to it at all. Hooker simply tells the listener that it serves them right to suffer and be alone because they're, quote, still living in the days that are past and gone. John Lee Hooker is expressing his anger and frustration with people who just cannot seem to move on and who are stuck in the past. And not only is he frustrated, but he outright says that suffering is inevitable and whoever he is speaking to deserves it. There really is not much else I can say about this song and its writing. It is one of my personal favorite songs of all time because of the honesty and anger that Hooker expresses directly to the listener, and there is no other way to engage with the song besides listening to it several times and gaining something new from it each time. Beyond just personal anger from his traveling and lived experiences, the 1960s inspired Hooker to write several songs expressing frustration directed towards the American political landscape of the time. John Lee Hooker wrote a few songs directly pertaining to riots and protests from the civil rights movement. In 1962, Hooker wrote the song Birmingham Blues, in which he expresses his desire to go to Birmingham to protest, but, quote, he ain't going down to Birmingham by himself. In 
He declares that he feels so bad when he reads about Birmingham and cries out that, quote, God made everybody equal. At the end of the song, he offers a glimmer of hope, saying that, quote, the president's doing everything he can, which would have been President Kennedy at the time. But even with this hope for change in the United States, he insists angrily that, quote, one day Birmingham, Mississippi, and Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, all them states, Arkansas, will fall in line. Even when he is hopeful for the future, John Lee Hooker is angry and restless. Similarly, on his 1967 album Urban Blues is the song Motor City is Burnin'. The song was written in the wake of the intense 1967 Detroit protests and expresses the feelings of helplessness John Lee Hooker must have felt when he heard the city was on fire. Although he traveled most of his life, Detroit was the closest thing that Hooker had to a hometown, and it must have pained him to hear his city suffer. He cries out in the song that, quote, His hometown is burning to the ground, and there ain't a thing he can do. And despite the fact that he laments the rampant destruction and chaos in his hometown, he still retains his restlessness and declares that, quote, he can't stay around and he and his family are clearing out. However, the most anger that John Lee Hooker expresses out of all of his 1960s discography has to be in his song titled, I'm Bad Like Jesse James. The song is the opening track to his 1966 live album, Live at Cafe El Gogo. For this album, he was backed by Muddy Waters' band, and during the entire performance, you can hear Muddy and the band struggle to keep up with John Lee Hooker's unorthodox playing style. On this opening track, Hooker compares himself to infamous Confederate outlaw Jesse James, alternating between declaring he is bad or mad like Jesse James. Hooker expresses open threats of violence and revenge in this song, but because he's, quote, the big boss, he does not even see what happens to his victims. He brags that he's got three boys that do his dirty work, and they'll tie your hands, gag your throat, set you in the water, and that crying won't help you none. As the song goes on, Hooker's tone in his voice grows more and more angry. In this live recording, John Lee Hooker has the rage of a punk rocker a decade before the genre even comes to be. By the end, he is practically screeching at the audience that nothing you do can escape the wrath he feels. The comparison of himself, a black musician, to infamous outlaw Jesse James, who supported the Confederacy in the Civil War, is a fascinating expression of rage. Not only is he embodying an outlaw's attitude, but it's as if he is expressing a feeling of revenge. In this song, John Lee Hooker brags that he is so powerful that he does not even need to be at the scene of the crime to know that he will be listened to. This is also one of the few songs where Hooker outright says it. He is mad. Stemming from similar anger that he felt towards the slow progress of the civil rights movement, John Lee Hooker also protested the U.S.'s involvement in the Vietnam War in several different songs. On Urban Blues from 1967, Hooker includes another protest song called I Gotta Go to Vietnam. This song pokes fun at patriotic Americans who wanted to get to Vietnam as soon as they could. He references the famous blues standard Rollin' and Tumblin', which has the iconic chorus of I was rolling and tumbling all night long, and states that he needs to leave his lover because Uncle Sam needs him to fight in Vietnam. The song is satirical, and his usage of the standard rolling and tumbling shows willingness to poke fun at social issues with the use of his own genre. On his 1969 album Simply the Truth, John Lee Hooker recorded a single with the complete opposite title of I Don't Want to Go to Vietnam. The song was direct and said explicitly his attitude towards the Vietnam War, which questioned why people wanted to fight there in the first place. Hooker laments that he, quote, reads the news every day about Vietnam and has so much friends in Vietnam and that he, quote, might never see them no more. He questions the fact that, quote, men in the street have so much trouble of their own, why they want to fight in Vietnam. 
To John Lee Hooker, there were enough problems right here at home that needed addressing, rather than continuing to fight a war so far away from his home country. His most subtle, but in my opinion most powerful song about Vietnam was actually never released at the time. The song was titled This Land is Nobody's Land, and was an extra cut during a 1966 recording session that was not released until 1991. It is possible that the title was inspired by Woody Guthrie's famous folk tune, This Land is Your Land. John Lee Hooker was a part of the early 1960s folk craze, whose participants worshipped Guthrie's songwriting, so it is very likely that he heard this song during this time. Hooker expresses remorse over the fact that everybody is, quote, fighting over this land, yet it's no one's land. He cries out that, quote, God made this world where everybody equal, yet they're still fighting. It's as if Hooker is mourning that no longer is this land everyone's land, like Woody Guthrie expresses in his radical folk tune. Instead, the combination of the tenseness of the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement have made it seem like it is nobody's land, merely a desolate and lonely burying ground. Although John Lee Hooker expresses so much unapologetic sorrow and anger within his songs, he still was known as the King of the Boogie. The extremely depressing album It Serves You Right to Suffer is balanced out with several boogie tracks designed to make his audience dance the entire night, such as Shake It Baby. As well, his most popular album during the 1960s, the strangely titled The Real Folk Blues, is full of tracks that would be played at a dance hall or party. But even with his boogie songs, there was still a sense of anger. Instead, it seemed like he was letting out his anger. Shake It Baby, for instance, has one of the most intense screams I've ever heard that rivals most modern-day metal singers, and Let's Go Out Tonight on The Real Folk Blues has some of the most gruff and aggressive vocals I've ever heard on a blues song. Although John Lee Hooker seemed bitter and angry his entire life, he also expressed joy in letting his audience dance to his music. There truly is no other cure to getting rid of one's anger than simply screaming one's vocal cords out and dancing the night away. My discovery of John Lee Hooker and his connection to Decoration Day was the initial inspiration for this project. I've always been interested in songwriting and musical expression and the stories that inspire them, and this was the song that made me become more interested in blues songwriting. John Lee Hooker quickly became one of my favorite songwriters and guitar players of all time after listening to the album It Serves You Right to Suffer. Listening closely to the lyrics in the album made me rethink how lyrics, especially blues lyrics, could tell stories and be reinterpreted. Thank you. 